Hello and welcome to Africa Past and Present, episode 85, uh, with your host Peter Leggi and Peter Lim and Anne Beerstaker. A very warm welcome to our guest, Abdul Latif Abdullah, who is the best-known Swahili poet in independent Kenya's first political prison prisoner. He was imprisoned in 1969 in solitary confinement until 1972. In the 1980s, he worked with Ngugi wa Thiongo in the release The Political Prisoners Group and Mwa Kenya. His books include Utenzi wa Maisha ya Nabi Adam Nahawa, an epic poem on the life of Adam and Eve, and Sauti Adiki, the voice of agony. The poems in Sauti Adiki were written on small pieces of toilet paper and secretly smuggled out. When the book was published, it was awarded the Kenyatta Prize in Literature, and Abdul Latif went to Tanzania, where he headed the literature and publications section at the Institute of Swahili Research at the University of Dar es Salaam, and he edited the journals Mulika and Kiswahili and also worked on the Institute's Dictionary Project. His recent works include the Leongo Songs, um, published in Cologne and Dar es Salaam, and a collection of poetry from Pemba. He taught at the University of Dar es Salaam and the University of Leipzig and worked for the BBC. He's here in Michigan editing Swahili poetry and working with me and with Kelly Askew of the University of Michigan. Welcome, Abdul Latif. Thank you very much. I'll start with a question. How do you see the relationship between your study of poetry and your own poetry? Uh, I think it's, it's a, different, a dif difficult question that to answer. Because working with my own poetry, it's something which comes from me, from within me. Uh, therefore, that's easy. <laughs> because it's me who's controlling it and uh, how to, to pour it out from, from, from within me and, 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 and uh, uh, broadcast it to the audience. Whereas with the poetry, which, uh, and this is the thing which I enjoy more, in fact, uh, one of the things which m most of my fans are complaining about me is that uh, since Sauti Adiki, they haven't seen any other collection of my poetry. The funny thing or the, uh, the strange thing is that I don't like publishing. Uh, and especially being a person who, who has been in the academia, you, you, you need to publish, but <laughs> I, I hate publishing, uh, especially poetry. I've published other articles, critical, um, uh, uh, literary critical articles and all that. But poetry, I prefer to read it in front of the audience. Because to me, poetry on paper, I mean, it's, it's, it's as if it's dead. It doesn't have life. Whereas by reading it, reciting it in front of the mm -hmm. public, that's where I get the most uh, satisfaction. Uh, so I have written poems uh, after Sauti Adiki, but uh, they have not been published. Some of them, there are only a few of them, some of my friends just took them by force and decided to publish, publish them in some collections. But me, personally, I am not very much in favor of uh, publishing it. But whereas what I enjoy most is to work on other people's poems. <laughs> I enjoy that a lot. Mostly because, uh, and especially for those poets 
budding poets, those who, have, who are not known yet. Because I believe that um, there should be more poets around rather than us who are already known. And as you know, with publishers, mostly they like, they, they go with names. Once somebody has become famous, then they would like to publish that person. Whereas for me, I like that those who are less known, they're the ones who should be, should be made public and be so that they are known as well. The more we have, the better, rather than sticking to just a few. Uh, so I enjoy working on other people's uh, poems more than my own, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> And what about the more traditional uh, songs and poems, um, if you like? The, in particular, you've recently uh, contributed to a wonderful book on Leongo songs and poems, mm -hmm. I think in the northern dialects. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering about their past and present, if you could just elaborate a little for the listeners right. and, and perhaps respond about whether they're still popular today amongst mm -hmm. younger people. No, um, Leongo's poems or poems attributed to Leongo, because there are so many uh, poems which are claimed to have been either composed by Leongo himself or attributed to Leongo. Some other poets wrote some poetry on him. Leongo was a, I should say, was a legendary or a mythic figure, in fact, in Swahili. Uh, he's, um, uh, he's believed to have lived between the 1160 to 1204. And uh, there are so many uh, poems about him uh, who have been written about him. He's, he's one of the legendary heroes of the, Swahili, of the Swahilis. Now, most of those poems, in fact, were written a very long time ago, um, some of which, in fact, many people don't even know about them. Uh, some of them had been published. Some of them were oral. I mean, they were just recorded from people who, who still remembered them, so they recited them and they and they were recorded and then transliterated and, uh, and published. So in that collection of, of, of uh, I think it's uh, poems attributed to Fomo Leongo, what we did was that, uh, it was about 10 years ago, I think, when we worked on that. We had two workshops in, in Bayreuth, Bayreuth University, where some scholars of Swahili literature and some experts of, 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 of early Swahili poetry were invited. Uh, and we had uh, about two weeks on each session um, of our workshop where we collected all those poems which are attributed to, to Leongo, and then we compared them with the diff different versions which we had, and then we came up with one authorized, according to us, <laughs> version of, of them. And then they were published, um, and they also we did some uh, English translation of them. The poems, as I said, uh, are very early, in, they belong to a very early period of Swahili literature. Therefore, the, even the language which is in there, despite the fact that they are first in the northern dialects, but even for the people who speak those dialects now, the, some, most of them wouldn't, wouldn't be able to make a head or tail out of them because the language is completely different. Uh, it's mostly, um, in fact, more connected to the earlier version of Kiswahili, which is Kingozi, uh, rather than the, the modern Kiswahili, which we have now. So, especially on that aspect, it was important that these poems could be collected together and uh, published in one, in, one, and in, in, one, in one book with, with translation and explanations as well. Therefore, the wider public now will be able to, to understand those poems.
a little while back, I was talking to my mom on the phone. She lives in Italy, and uh, she taught me almost everything that I know about poetry, which is unfortunately still very little. Um, she was in the middle of translating a South African poet into Italian. And she remarked to me how nice it was that a South African publisher mm. was so actively publishing poetry, given that the market for poetry has really shrunk dramatically. Mm. Uh, seems to be struggling this genre in what some people like to call the marketplace of ideas, right, in about a kind of capitalist logic. How do you see the publishing landscape for poetry and poets, uh, particularly as it affects uh, African poets? Mm. Well, in, in the West, I think poetry is more associated with elite, elitism, whereas uh, in Kiswahili poetry or in, in uh, other poetry in other African languages as well, I think it's, 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 it's more concerned with the ordinary people. For example, in Kiswahili, most of those famous Swahili poets are people who one would now call them even, even, even in, in the... the, the uneducated, people who didn't even go to school or even to madrasa, but they, 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 they are very, they're very good poets. So it's not, it, it is not connected with elitism at, at, at all, uh, because it's a popular art form. It is believed, of course, poetry, that the, 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 the essence or rather the origin of poetry is a song. Song is the origin of poetry. Now, with, as, you, as you would uh, agree with me, I think, that a song is something which, which anybody, well, of course, it it it, it, it will vary on, on, on how good or bad one is. But a song, a form, a song is, is a form of artistic expression which many people can can do that. What you need is just to have something which touched you, either in a good way or in a bad way, and then one would. Would, would express those feelings in a in a song in a, in a song form. Now that's the basis of of Kiswahili poetry as well. Therefore, it's not an form uh, an art. Um, uh, it's not a sort of an art which which needs one to be highly educated as such. As ordinary people, as I said, most of the very famous and very good poets are people who never went to school. Unfortunately. Well, there was a time, uh, especially in East Africa, when when poetry, soil poetry, had very, very, very bright future. Now, now here we're talking about poetry which has been written down. If you look at most of, our, of most, at most of our societies, African societies, you find that they are illiterate. And uh, for a publisher to agree to publish, for example, a collection of poems, that publisher first has to make sure that that book will be included in the school syllabus. Otherwise, there's no market for that because not many people can read. And even if they could read, not many people can afford to buy books. Books have become so expensive now. So the, the market for such books were in schools. So there was a time, especially in the 70s and 80s, um, poetry, Swahili poetry, had a very good time at that, at that period because so many anthologies, poems, were included in school curricula in, 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 in Kenya and in Tanzania as well. But then later on, the ministries of education, and especially so in Kenya, changed their policy. Instead of having a whole collection of anthology, from maybe from just one poet in, in the curricula, 
they decided to, 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 to get rid of that policy. And then instead, they just would perhaps pick just one or two points and, and have those as, a, as a, to be set as for example. As a result, therefore, nowadays not many publishers are interested in, in publishing points as, as such. And uh, as a result, therefore, the number of people who would read now poetry has diminished. Uh, despite the fact now, poetry is mostly nowadays, uh, uh, it's found in the, in the, in the popular songs, uh, especially Tarab, Tarab songs. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, in short then I would say that the, 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 the Swahili poetry, or I would say even in, um, poetry in African, other African languages as well, at the moment they are struggling um, for, for, for survival, uh, so to speak. Yeah. And, of course, uh, reading uh, poems or writing can also get you in trouble sometimes. <laughs> I wonder if you could um, explain the events leading to your arrest and uh, imprisonment right. and solitary confinement with this Kenya Quindapi uh, right, right. piece you wrote. Well, in fact, what, what uh, caused me to be imprisoned was not poetry. Uh, it was a pamphlet which I'd written in 1968. Now... Kenya got its independence in 1963 in December. And people had a lot of expectations that things are going to get better after colonial rule. People had high hopes and expectations. But uh, just three years after independence, those who took power from British colonialists started to behave in a way, in a strange way, I should say. Because all those things or policies which had been agreed upon that this is what the independent Kenyan government would pursue, they abandoned all that. Instead, they just got into amassing wealth, those who were in power, grabbing land. Because land was the main issue uh, of, of, of Kenya's uh, struggle for independence. Uh, the Mau Mau War was most, mostly based on the land to reclaiming the land which was taken by the white settlers, by the colonialists. So many people thought that once we got independence, that land which was robbed from the local people would be at least given back to them. But instead, what happened was that those who were in power then grabbed that land. People ended up with thousands and thousands of acres of land. Whereas those people, I mean, who, who didn't have any means of, of survival, those whose land was taken from them, it was not given back to them. This is only one aspect. So some of the of those who were in the struggle for independence, because not all, all of them resorted to such uh, behavior, some of them started to ask questions and, uh, and wanted to change things from within. Um, of course, they failed. Therefore, in 1966, the first opposition party was formed, which was called Kenya People's Union, and it was led by Oginga Odinga. Who was, uh, who was the first vice president of the independent Kenya. He formed this opposition party after, after failing to bring about changes from within the government. Now, I got attracted to the policies of this party. Uh, I was 19 years old then. Now, although the party was legally registered, but the government suppressed it. It didn't allow it to function uh, uh, freely. It wasn't even allowed to, to have um, um, uh, public rallies and things like that. So some of us devised other means of trying to reach 
the people. Uh, uh, we resorted to writing pamphlets. Um, now, one of my tasks was uh, to write a monthly pamphlet to explain the party's policies and also to criticize the government where we thought that it was going uh, doing the things the wrong way. Now, I managed to do that, and all those pamphlets were done secretly, uh, clandestinely. Nobody knew who wrote them. Nobody knew who distributed them. People just saw them in the streets and, uh, <laughs> and places, public places. Now, the seventh pamphlet, which is, uh, as you said, it was called Kenya to Ndapi, Kenya, where are we heading to? Now, in that pamphlet, I dealt with, uh, a month or so before I wrote that pamphlet, there was a local government elections in Kenya, just municipal elections. Now, the opposition party, Kenya People's Union, fielded about 1,800 candidates all over the country. Now, the government was going to lose that election, definitely, because people had already started to see how wrong it was. Now, what the government did, instead of facing <laughs> the opposition, what they did was that they disqualified all 1,800 opposition candidates. And the reason which the government gave, which, which really annoyed me so much, was that they said that all those 1,800 uh, nomination papers of, of opposition candidates were wrongly filled in now. <laughs> you don't need you don't you don't you don't need to be <laughs> a genius to I mean all one thousand eight hundred, not a single one was correctly filled in. Now therefore therefore they were all disqualified and all the, 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 the candidates for the for the ruling party were I mean got in without opposition. Now to me, that was one way of denying the people their right, their democratic right, to choose the leadership they want. And that was the only peaceful way of doing, of changing things. Now, therefore, in that pamphlet, I dealt with that issue. And I said, in short, it was a four-page four pamphlet. I said that by doing so, the, the government have denied the people their right, their peaceful right to change things. A few months later, there were supposed to be parliamentary elections and presidential elections. So I said, if the government will behave the same way in the forthcoming elections, then the people will have no alternative except to use force to change things, since the government is not willing to allow people to change things democratically and peacefully. Now, that is what put me into it. So I was arrested and charged with, uh, with seven counts one of which, the first one, was the conspiracy to overthrow the government by using force of arms. And if I would have um, found guilty on that charge, I would have, of course, the sentence was death sentence. But fortunately enough, I won four of those counts, including the, the, the first one, and I was convicted on three counts. Because I had to defend myself, all the lawyers refused to defend me. That they were threatened by the government not to defend me, so I had to defend myself. I knew nothing about the law, and but fortunately enough, I won four of those counts, and I was convicted on three the lesser ones, uh, and I was sent to prison, fast for only one and a half years. But then the government appealed against the sentence. I was sent back to the court. They increased the <laughs> the sentence to three years, and then I was told that. I should not even enjoy the one-third remission which is normally given to prisoners because I would have uh, only served two years. But the government said, no, I should serve all three years on this. 
locked me in a cell for all those three years in solitary confinement. Sol- but you fought back from solitary confinement with poetry. With poetry, And would, yes. would, would you like to, to recount some of that? Right, yeah. Well, poetry is one of the things which saved me from going mad. Because you can imagine, you lock somebody in a cell 24 hours, no communication, even with my close family. I was not allowed even to talk to the warders whom, who were guarding me. I had two special warders. Just I was locked in a cell, but at the outside the, the door cell, there was 24 hours, there was a warder there, standing there. I was not allowed even to talk to, the, to them. But I befriended two of them. Uh, they became my friends. And one of them is the one who provided me with this very short piece of pencil. And uh, I used toilet paper, because I was given toilet papers every week. So I tried to use them very sparely so that I could have as much paper as possible to write on. And then I gave them to one of these warders who smuggled them out and sent them to my elder brother, who kept them till after my release. Now, poetry is one of the things which saved me in there. But the main thing which saved me from going mad and and gave me strength to persevere about all the things, including tortures which were... Uh, which I went through there, was that I never regretted what I did. I believed that what I did was right, and I will do it again if the opportunity (laughs) is there. Uh, So that saved me. Uh, So I served my three years and came out. uh, In fact, I came out stronger than when I went in. And uh, I continued with with, it. opposing the government, but this time I was advised that I should, because I continued to speak out. But then I was advised that I better leave the country, otherwise this time when if they arrest me, I won't come out alive. They will kill me. So I spent my first seven years of exile in Tanzania. In all, I spent 22 years in exile without being able to go back home. Uh, from 1972, I could only go back home in 1994, when the government reintroduced the multi-party system. So seven years in Tanzania, the first seven years, and then from Tanzania, I got a job in London. I moved to London, BBC. Then I taught at School of Oriental and African Studies, and then I was the uh, editor-in-chief of the International Current Affairs magazine, which was published in London in English on Africa, which was called Africa Events. And after that, I moved to Germany, where I had gotten a job at Leipzig University. You know, <coughs> till three years ago when I retired. Would you like to give us a poem? Yeah, perhaps I should. There's one poem I always tell my audience when I have these readings that uh, if I had only written this poem in prison, that would have been sufficient for me. Uh, and this poem is called Siwati, meaning I will never abandon it, meaning my, conveni- my conviction. I'll never abandon my conviction. Now, the background to this poem is that, uh, you know, I got into this political activism mainly because of my elder brother. He's the one who put me into this problem. <laughs> <laughs> he himself was involved in the independence struggle of Kenya. But then after independence, after seeing things were going the wrong way, he got disillusioned and he never bothered with politics anymore. But um, he's the one, in fact, who educated me politically. 
I became very politically aware at very early age. I said 19 years already I was an activist. Now he is the one, he, uh, before he became a politician, he was a teacher. And he used to give me books to read. Uh, read this book, read this book. In fact, uh, just as many young people then, when I was a teenager, I was so much attracted by Western culture. And uh, him being a nationalist, and also he's a Muslim scholar, Sheikh Abdullah Nasir, he was not happy with my behavior. So what he did was that he made sure that I was with him most of the time. So we went to his political meetings and things like that. So I, I, got, uh, I got politicized that way. And again, he was giving me all this literature, political literature to, to read. Now I remember he gave me one book. That is the book which was very instrumental into my going to the extreme left politics. That book was by Fidel Castro. It was his defense. After he was arrested, he was trying to overthrow Batista, the first attempt when they failed. He was arrested and then was sent before the court. Now, his defense in court. Um, history we, will absolve me. Exactly. <laughs> it was published uh, as history will absolve me. Now, that is the, he gave me that. He said, read this and read this critically and carefully. When I finished reading that defense, I went to the left, extreme left, that he had problems now to bring me back to the center. <laughs> now, when I started to get involved with these uh, opposition politics and writing these pamphlets, he once called me and said, do you know that what you're doing is dangerous? I said, yes. Do you know what would be the consequences? I told him, yes, I think, I, think I know. Then he asked, in order to make sure, he asked me, well, what do you think will happen to you? I said, either they will kill me or they will imprison me. Then he asked me, are you prepared for that? I said, yes, I think I am, because I believe in what I'm doing. He said, fine, I won't interfere with your conviction. If you strongly believe that what you're doing is correct, is right, and you don't have any doubt in your heart, even an iota of doubt, okay, you have my blessings, go forward. But if you have even a small doubt in your heart that what you're doing, once you start getting into problems, you will abandon everything, then you better abandon now. But if you are sure that you will move on, okay, go, go on. So this poem is mostly to thinking of that promise which I gave. Huh? I wrote this poem. Now, in this poem, as I said, in short, it talks about not abandoning my conviction, come what may, despite the tortures I was going through, I will continue to believe in what I believe in. So it says, Siwati nshishielo, siwati, kwa niniwate? Siwati nililohilo talishika kwa vyovyote? Siwati, ni miminalo hapano au popote, hadikaburini sote miminalo tufukiwe. Siwati, ngaadhibiwa adhabu kila mifano? Siwati, ngaambiwa tapawa kila kinono? Siwati, lilosawa. Silibandui mkono, hata ninga umuameno mkono siubandui. Siwati si ushindani mukasema na shindana. Siwati ifahamuni sababu ya waungwana. Siwati ndangu imani ni ithaminio sana na kuiwata naona itakuwa ni muhali. Siwati ni meradhiwa kufikwa na kila mawi. Siwati ni ngaambiwa ni aminio hayawi. Siwati kisha nikawa kamanzi hivyo siwi 
thama na kariri siwi na mungu nisaidia. Thank you very much. We really appreciate your visit here. And we look forward to the uh, publication. Although you said you don't like to publish, I'm sure mm -hmm. that others will uh, benefit from the translations you're working on with Anne and Kelly Askew. And I think you're going on to work with Ngugi Wationgo in California as well. So we all look forward to the fruits of your labors. Uh, we've been absolutely delighted to, to have you here at Michigan State University and talking to and uh, also reciting your poetry to Africa past and present. Thank you very much for having me. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.